With the Center for Medicare Services' recent decision to limit access to Biogen's Alzheimer's treatment, and with drug pricing sure to be one of the central issues of the looming midterm elections, Senator Kirsten Sinema's support of the Arizona biopharma sector places her state at ground zero of the drug pricing debates. Stepping directly into the fray, Danny Seiden, CEO of the Arizona Chamber of Commerce, has given a stark warning that the willingness of members of the federal government to take over the intellectual property of new medicines via a little-known legal provision called margin rights would, quote, crush American innovation, creating a new avenue for government to punish companies for bringing products, including life-saving treatments, successfully to market. Danny, it's truly a pleasure to have an opportunity to sit down with you. Thank you. Thanks, Dwayne. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you today. Well, I tell you, it's been a long time since I've been to Phoenix, and uh, I was here just recently about five months ago after about 20 years. I've not been here in high summer for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a warm hug waiting for you. It's, here, it's you know? warm, yeah. yeah. It's 105 today. I had a nice walk about eight blocks, and I think I'll Uber back. <laughs> <laughs> just drink a lot of water. Yeah. It's a dry heat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so is a microwave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anyway, now you took over the Arizona Chamber of Commerce almost a year ago to today, so there was not much happening when you joined. <laughs> you were in the middle yeah. of a pandemic. Um, there were debates around Build Back Better that obviously centered on your state with a lot of the drug pricing debate, huge changes in the business climate in the Western United States in general. How has your first year gone related to healthcare? How are you guys doing? In, in general, you know, Dwayne, you should know you're sitting in the fastest growing county in the country right now. So um, we're doing fantastic. The Arizona Chamber, you know, like you said, when I came on, we're just coming out of the pandemic. So everything was virtual. Everything was still Zoom. And that that's a big challenge for a membership organization and association like mine. However, um, as you noted, given the the debates that were happening at the federal level, given the debates that were happening at the state level, we are ground zero. You know, Senator Kirsten Cinema has really established herself as a, a swing vote and someone who takes in um, a lot of information when she considers what she's going to do in, in terms of some of these um, issues. So um, what, what we focused on here is we've tried to mirror that growth. You know, the chamber has grown a lot since I've started. I have a great team that's more responsible for that than I am. But um, it's, it's a good time um, to be in Arizona. It's a good time to be running a business business organization in Arizona, though in general, you know, we're, we're always looking for where is our base at, you know, how do we remind people of the importance of the free market that, you know, it used to be only one side of the aisle would push government intervention. Now we're seeing it on both sides of the aisle. So we're playing a right. lot of defense out there and doing a lot of educating. Now you came from the governor's office, right? And then you took over the chamber. Why, why did you decide to make that jump? I, I, I did. I did. And, you know, um, one thing I learned from my time in the governor's office, I did love helping people in that aspect of the job. And there's a civil service component to it. But this governor in particular, Governor Doug Ducey, comes from the private sector, and he's a big believer in the free market and that the free market has done more good for anyone who to lift them out of poverty and um, improve their quality of life than any idea that um, the other side has come up with over the years. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, when I, I got to sit in a front row seat for that for years and realize, you know, we need to keep bridging this gap between free market business solutions and politics and policymakers. And that's what I wanted to be in. The chamber is really at the crossroads of that. So California, as you know, uh, has been the 500-pound gorilla in biotech, gave birth to the sector in 1980. However, California has been ranked consistently at the bottom of all 50 states in business competitiveness for most of the last century and certainly this century. And the biopharma ecosystem in Arizona is booming. You are gobbling up biotech companies and VC. 
How have you positioned Arizona and the chamber in particular to grow that healthcare ecosystem? Because it is growing. Every week you're making new announcements Mm -hmm. of someone else breaking ground here. It seems like a lot's happening. Well, Dwayne, I mean, you'll see me say this a lot if you follow me on Twitter or some of the media we do. Policy matters. And the policies that we've put in place in Arizona have established Arizona as one of the best places in the country to to start, grow, or you know, move your business to. And that's all sectors, not just healthcare. In particular with, with healthcare, um, most of that migration is coming from California. You know, we, we do have a great partner in economic development in you know, the state of California <laughs> who seems eager to give us more and more of their companies <laughs> with some of the policies they do. Because at, at the core of all of this, there's a really good George Will quote that says, capital goes to where it's most wanted and stays where it's most loved. And that's true across business. So we've created an environment where people know they can come here, they can thrive, their um, freedoms are respected, their private rights of contracting are respected, and that's what the chamber fights for and we advocate for all the time. And that's why you're seeing this growth. So a lot of it's been manufacturing, a lot of it's been targeted manufacturing, a lot of it's been healthcare services. Obviously, you have a lot of pensioners, retirees here. But what's really intriguing is, you know, more than 13 billion of Silicon Valley venture capital flowed outside of the regions of the Bay Area in California and Boston for the first time. It was the first time in a decade that less than 30% of VC funds had gone to Silicon Valley, less than a third was going there. So it's going other places. And obviously Phoenix is one of the top five recipients. How do you move up the value chain from just, you know, straight manufacturing to start getting the real hard innovation in some of the new innovative gene therapies, cancer therapies, where all the action is. What are you guys doing to attract that business? That That's a great question. And you're right. Um, some of that growth has been targeted. We've improved our manufacturing environment over the years through several policies. We kind of identified how we can, you know, measure up in our competing states like Texas and Arizona. And people used to go right over. If you're going to leave California, Arizona would be skipped over and people would end up in Texas. That's not happening anymore. We're, no. com- we're competing with Texas now and we're winning a lot of times. And, um, that again is through targeted policies that work. Now, the way to get—I uh, like to call us the Silicon Desert, you know, now because you know the Silicon Valley is kind of ceasing its growth, and now we're on the rise. But the way we're going to continue to get those people is for a couple of things we're working on. One is, you know, we're openly courting biopharma, and we have great research facilities like the Mayo Clinic is a research hospital, and they've recently purchased a huge um, tract of land from the state, and they're partnering with ASU, and they have a lot of exciting ideas. So if you're capital and you want to invest in things like biopharma, that health cure corridor that they're calling it up there is a prime destination to go and and to come to. And we're going to keep producing the right workforce and the right talented workforce here too. That's a big issue for people when they're looking on where they can spend. And ASU has been named the most innovative university in the country ahead of MIT now for seven years in a row because they are meeting the pipeline needs along with the University of Arizona, great research school as well. So we're doing a very good job of reverse engineering what it is that the market needs and making Arizona the solution. How do you actually do that? Is it just people coming to you? Are you doing reach outs? Are you doing roadshows? Are you specifically going and meeting with biotech companies? Are you going to San Diego? Are you going to South San Francisco and sort of pressing the flesh? What, what's, what's the process? All, all of the above is the answer to the question. I, again, I think, uh, just let me say first, the most important thing 
is going to be the entire environment. So you ha- if, if that's not right, you're going to have a tough time. Once you've proven that you have the right environment for a business to thrive, that's what you take on the roadshow. And now again, let me go back to Governor Ducey, something he's done that's different. And maybe it was a page out of Rick Perry's playbook years and years ago is he goes and he meets with every one of these companies. You know, I can't tell you the amount of times we went to Sand Hill Road sure. up in uh, Silicon Valley and made the pitch for Arizona. California was not proving to be friendly to innovation and emerging technologies. People that call them disruptive technologies, I call them emerging technologies. Sure. So when they said no to autonomous vehicles, we flew out there and we said yes. And you know now we're a hub for electronic vehicle manufacturing. We're a hub for autonomous, you know, Google's autonomous vehicles are here. It's We are a state of the future. And that's intentional and it requires a lot of work. And you got to have a governor who believes in that vision and wants to sell Arizona. Last month, you wrote an editorial in Real Clear Policy, and you're one of the few officials representing a state agency, I should say, that has been willing to put their head over the parapet very vocally and discuss some of the pricing issues from the standpoint of intellectual property. Now, this is something our firm deals with quite exclusively. We're very concerned about some of these attacks, but you mentioned specifically about margin rights, and you said the assault on pharmaceutical innovation after the end of Build Back Better continues through the front door of Congress and through the back door of bureaucracy. What do you mean by that? To go back first to Build Back Better, you know, Build Back Better had a lot of bad provisions in it. And, you know, it's tough to pick, which is my least favorite. (laughs) Um, But there was a frontal assault on innovation and um, R&D and all the good things we get out of the pharmaceutical industry because they wanted to establish the government as a price negotiator. And you and I can talk for hours about why that's a bad idea. We've seen it play out in Europe. We don't have to guess what happens as a result of that. So um, when Build Back Better went down, due in large part to our center, our senior center at Cinema (laughs) here, which we appreciate her looking out for everyone on, uh, we've been waiting to see how they try and come back at it. So what they've done is there was an article about Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts using fairly obscure act called the Bayh-Dole Act, you know, that was passed in the 1980s. And, you know, it's one of those acts that has the greatest of tensions, right? You know, it was bipartisan between Senator Dole and Senator Bayh. And the idea was that if you're a company that's getting R&D money from the government, um, but you are not using that correctly or allowing public access to whatever it is you're supposed to be creating and it could provide a public good, they have the ability to march in and kind of change how that operation works. And there's a lot of criteria that goes into that. But you know what's not a criteria? is price controls. It's never about what the price of the drug is. Um, that's, that's not ever in history been a reason to trigger a marching right. So it's a backdoor way of getting what they failed to do through Build Back Better. And it's dangerous and it will lead to nothing but limited access, limited innovation. And you know, when we're on the cusp of so many exciting things in terms of cures and you know, medical breakthroughs, I don't know why we'd want to move backwards. There's a lot there to unpack. When we look at the Bayh-Dole legislation, the the main purpose of Bayh-Dole was it it created a vehicle to take government-funded intellectual property that mostly came from the NIH in early stage and then commercialize it privately. That's great. And Bayh-Dole's been a huge win that's been seen rather, (laughs) shall we say, people have been rather jealous of that globally, the ability that we can take we can be commercially minded enough in the United States to take government funded IP and then commercialize it privately. And no one has a problem with that. That's fantastic. But the, the margin rights were there. You're right. A hundred percent. A small provision of this was, well, if it doesn't get utilized, 
then you know the government can come in and take it over. Now, there's a wonderful example, I think it was about 20 years ago, that we were just looking at. The state of Wisconsin was holding a particular stem cell patent that they were not uh, they were being very difficult on the licensing. Mm-hmm. So the NIH actually came in and used marching rights to get it. So it could be commercialized yeah. more. And that's 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 the right... Exactly. Obviously what they intended with that legislation. Um, because, uh, again, you know, these pharmaceutical companies are working on huge breakthroughs. And it's some partly funded by, you know, federal R&D. Sometimes it's not funded. Sometimes, you know, the proportions always change. But it was never intended to allow the government to come in and basically steal IP or devalue IP. Because when that happens, we, we don't have a free market system anymore. We don't have any incentive, if you're a pharmaceutical company, to work on cures for rare diseases anymore because it's an orphan population. It's a small population. So that's the frightening thing about how they're abusing that act now. It was, again, great intentions, but you know, to see them try and use it for something bad that will stifle both, stifle both access and innovation is actually very frightening. Now, Danny, you're one of the few people who's willing to come out and sort of say, look, yes, this could lower pricing, but this is the wrong way to do it. Was there any blowback to that? I mean, did you have any heat for coming out very publicly that way? Sure. There's people who, who want to just keep pointing out again that drug pricing is, you know, what I hear a lot. Let me, let me, let's play Mythbusters for a second, Dwayne. <laughs> what I hear a lot is that drug pricing is the number one cost increase in healthcare. It's the number one cost driver. I hear that all the time. And that's just not true. Nope. The numbers don't bear that out. You know, I've talked about this a little bit in the past. It's anywhere from, you know, 10 to 13% of the total healthcare spent. And so one, we need a better education campaign. I, I love a lot of what pharma school companies do, but I don't think they tell their story the right way sometimes. And so they do become these villains and the numbers and statistics don't even back that up. So one, I'm going to be a passionate defender of people who are out there saving lives. And, you know, the, if the blowback is, well, this would have lowered drug prices. The answer is, well, let's look at that. Would it really lower drug prices? In um, you, you again, you go to a place like Europe, you go to a place where there's HTAs and things that control the prices a little bit more. You pay uh, a penalty, in one, nothing's for free. You pay a penalty in one of two ways either the prices really don't go down, or they do go down, but access disappears. It's, it's, it's stifled. And you have people in Europe trying to come here to get treatments, which is, you know, again, we want America to be the shining light on the hill. We want to do things the best we can. Um, I do think the way we look at pricing in general needs to be reevaluated, but government price controls just don't work. And we don't have to guess. We don't have to right. say, well, let's just try it because these prices are out of control. One, we've just said they're not out of control because it's only 10 to 12% of total spend. And two, we know what happens when the government gets involved. Build Back Better is probably going to come back in some perspective here as we're coming into the midterm. Certainly the drug pricing parts of that bill because there is some bipartisan willingness to try and run on that in the election. Many states are trying to pass their own pricing caps as well through Medicare and Medicaid. Obviously, you have, a, as I mentioned earlier, you have a very high percentage of retirees. How do you balance that need for innovation with the fact that you're going to get political heat for not for having to put in cost controls. There must be a balance that's made. How do you propose squaring that circle? And, you know, we're watching that closely. And we did a Capitol Hill update with Senator Cinema, And specifically, this topic came up about what would happen in Bill, if Bill Back Better comes up with these provisions. And she talked about the discussions on, well, maybe there's certain drugs that really need it. But here's the thing about that. You know, you, you talked at the beginning of the hour about, a, you know, CMS limiting access. By the way, limiting access to a, a, a treatment. That's what happens when you start to let government get involved here. And 
if you're a, a dad, a mom, a brother, a sister, a child, and you want access to a treatment, but you're going to be told no by your government, or you're going to find out, wait, it's not here anymore. We have to go to a different country because government has stifled that innovation. I think that far outweighs what we're seeing with some of these price issues. I, I know people love to find that initial sticker shock and, and point to that and say, this is, this is absurd and we need to do something about that. Very rarely is that what people are paying, one. And two, you know, there won't complain when you know, we'll talk about gene therapy maybe a little bit later, but <laughs> when gene therapy comes out, that's a huge sticker shock at first, but the ultimate savings over a lifetime, sure. it's beyond worth it. People need to, to know and understand that. And I'm going to keep doing my best to tell them. We, we did a huge analysis on CAR-T for the Dutch government that we published in the British Medical Journal. And what we found was, yes, the drug costs about $300,000, but you're spending about $250,000 extra for the stem cell treatment in the hospital. So for a far less invasive treatment and far less complications, you potentially can use another drug and you can do far more CAR-Ts that are far less invasive. They don't require a donor. So there are costs there that are not being calculated and reconciled in the current way we do healthcare. I would like to go back to something about, you mentioned about Build Back Better as well, that it's a government negotiation. For those who aren't aware of what was in the bill, essentially what it was is you didn't negotiate, if you did not negotiate with the government, there was a potential 90% profit penalty. That's hardly what I would call a, uh, a two-way starting point. <laughs> I got to tell you, that's like uh, one person negotiating with a, a bazooka and another person holding a BB gun. It's it's not a negotiation at all. That's that's right. And if the, the folks could see, we're always using air quotes when we say the word negotiation um, to, to emphasize that point because there is there is no negotiation that goes on. And, and again, your example at the beginning with the Alzheimer's drug is just, is just one of many that, yeah, maybe they're trying to limit uh, price, but they're going to limit access eventually. Sure. And that's what we cannot allow to have happen here. Anyone who's lived in Europe, spent time in Europe and thinks that system is better. I have a, I would love to sit down and have that conversation transparently. I, I do live in Europe. Um, I travel more and more these days because we're doing more work in the States. But uh, although I grew up in California, I've spent, you know, most of the last 40 years on the other side of the Atlantic. What, what the healthcare system in Europe does very well is treat general things extremely well. There's a general le great level of healthcare provision. If you look at the cancer outcomes across Europe, they're hugely divergent. Mm -hmm. uh, depends on where you are. Belgium does pretty well. Scandinavia does pretty well. The UK is pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And it just depends on where you're sitting. It'll be interesting to see what the blowback is post-COVID-19 with all of the lack of treatment we've had over two years. You mentioned in your article our research about the and you've mentioned this a couple times in our discussion that the, the divergence between Europe and the United States on innovation and the cost of lacking access. If you look at Europe in 1980, 60% of drugs originated in Europe, according to the Arthur Dammer study. Mm -hmm. And now we did a study, we looked at half a trillion dollars of investment that came into partnerships out of the big 35 pharma companies. And, you know, 421 billion of that half a trillion dollars went to the United States, predominantly California and Massachusetts. So there's been a huge sea change in this. The Trump administration wanted to cram down pricing. Uh, the same administration had gone around asking the other governments to kick in more for NATO, which is 11% of our GDP. Healthcare is 20%. Mm -hmm. 
you've worked in government, you're working for business. Why would this not be, wouldn't you see this as more of a trade issue? Why do you think we haven't pursued those lines? That's a good question. You know, and I've tried to, I've tried to think about this um, a, a little bit more, you know, again, it's a good example of why this is not a Republican or Democrat issue because you never not. know what idea you're going to get because everyone loves the idea of lower prices. Um, and it's easy again to look at some prices of drugs in Europe or sometimes the Middle East, you know, I could, we could go on to, you know, the hepatitis C drug, you know, <laughs> issue for, for a long time. Um, the idea of tying it to trade is is something that's that's interesting. You know, I'm watching now. You're you're seeing um, like uh, I think Pfizer just announced a new initiative to provide affordable drugs to a lot of um, developing countries in Africa, and it's, it's interesting to see what that's going to look like and how it's going to p- play out. But one thing that I know um, again is the more government involvement seems to be the less we get of innovation and access. So I'm a bigger fan of letting the market do its job and play itself out. And on the, again, on going back to, to price controls, if someone could show me where the government has actually succeeded in lowering price controls, you know, I'll be the first one to say, wow, that's an interesting idea, but we just have not seen it. There's always a price to pay somewhere else. And I care a lot more about people having access to treatment than I do about universal, you know, drug pricing fairness or whatever you might see attempt at some treaty. You're, you're right. I mean, sometimes this gets talked about on bigger levels. There's conversations happening out at the WHO. I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what, what things look like. But um, here in America, we're going to be innovative and we're going to have access. You mentioned this is a bipartisan issue. Kirsten Sinema has sort of threaded the needle here very, very well. She's a Democrat who is pro-business and pro-innovation. Obviously, a lot of the talking points you're speaking are more free market, Milton Friedman-esque type of bullet points. Uh, There seems to be consensus here. However, if you hear the rhetoric coming out of D.C. and in some of the national and state representatives, probably not so much. Is there still room for compromise here to try and get a win-win solution, or, or is that time gone? You know, I think what Senator Sinema did that's really well and go off drugs and pharma for an in, for a moment was if you look at the infrastructure, you know, the Investment Infrastructure and Jobs Act, that was her, that was Senator Portman, that was a bipartisan effort to pass a massive, the largest infrastructure package we've seen in decades. And it wouldn't have gotten done if they weren't working across the aisle. So I think what she demonstrated is that our the greatest deliberative body in the, in the world, I'll say, the United States Senate, can still function. It can still come up with good ideas. So I'll never give up the belief that we can't find compromise and we can't find a way to, 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 to move forward. I know that vulnerable Democrats are going to listen to their... Um, constituencies and they're going to get a lot on drug pricing. But, but again, you know, just wait, just wait till that one treatment comes out. And there's that story about, you know, whether it's being on the cusp of solving, you know, Duquesne's mushroom dystrophy, you know, through gene therapy, and it's a very expensive price tag. So access gets limited or something like that. Those people will not stand for that. That feels un-American, and that makes me happy that here in this country, we are always going to favor access over government involvement first. So, Is a lot of this just the current out-of-pocket costs related to the drug pricing bill, do you think? Is there something there that could be done around the way we're reimbursing drugs and the donut hole and all those things? Well, I mean, that's interesting. You know, you're, we could do a whole session on 340B <laughs> and, and how, the, how the rebates are working. And, yeah. you know, are they, is the value getting to the consumer at the bottom? And, um, you know, a lot of times the answer is no. There's a lot of different players in the drug tower, I'll call that, you know, on how it's distributed. The patients tend not to get the benefit that they're supposed to from what that program is supposed to look like. So I, I think we can go back and look 
at some of these programs and could there be more accountability, more transparency? Because uh, again, Dwayne, I'm a big fan of having these discussions in the light. If there's a, an organization out there that's funded by, you know, one aspect of healthcare that's saying we need price controls and drugs are what's driving costs, take off your grass tops, tell us who you are, and let's have that discussion transparently because the numbers don't bear that out. Again, I think that we're on the side of angels here. We're trying to provide access to um, all kinds of treatments. And, you know, I, 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 want, I want America to always be that and have that. I want Europe to have that too. You know, I grew up the a stepfather in the Navy, spent some time in the UK, and I know a little bit about how long they make you wait on certain treatments. And it's, it's actually very tragic. It's, you know, it's easy to talk about the 30,000 foot level on like we're in an economics class. These are real people with real children who can't get access to the treatments they need. There was a government initiative about four years ago where they were starting to publish performance of the various NHS hospitals and national health service hospitals in the UK and all hell broke loose when, you know, some hospitals were doing very well and some weren't. And basically the program kind of got scrapped or at least got very buried. So transparency is hard, particularly when healthcare, when healthcare is controlled by the government, by definition, it's a bureaucratic system. And so the doctors then become bureaucrats. You said it. I don't see how people lose in transparency. I don't see how, I I think this debate deserves a transparent discussion. I think pharma should come forward with, this is what it costs to make a drug. This is what it costs to research a drug. I don't think people are as dumb as apparently maybe certain elements of government think they are. I think (laughs) we can have this discussion um, in the light of day with what things really cost on each level, whether it's the payers, whether it's pharmaceuticals, whether it's the hospitals, providers, and figure out what we need to do instead of this finger pointing, saying it's this person, it's that person, or, hey, we can all point to pharma right now because we can find that one example of a really high-priced drug. No one wins there. I had a very interesting conversation last weekend at a conference in Berlin, and someone was complaining about the absurd profitability of the pharmaceutical sector. I said, do you know what the net-net profitability was the sector was last year? He said, no. And I said, 14% right behind the soft drink sector. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one question that comes up on that is this new Mark Cuban thing. You know, yeah. they're going to do this pharmacy, and they've said they'll cap their margin at 15%. And people will say, well, what do you say to that? And I'll say, well, I think it's great. It's a private sector, you know, solution. But one thing that his group will never do is not going to discover a drug. They're not going to come up with a cure. You know, they're selling generics. And, you know, again, you brought up IP and we could do a whole like, five <laughs> hours on IP. And, 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 and again, you know, if you're somebody who's working on an invention, imagine if the government's saying, well, after three years, that belongs to the whole world. Or after six years, that belongs to the whole world. And you're like, well, why did I devote my whole life to trying to discover this if I'm just going to lose the IP? It's a greater good argument. And I understand that. But that's what makes pharmaceuticals really unique. No one else has that, you know, automatic loss of IPs. I mean, imagine telling Apple, listen, we're going to take the IP away from the iPhone every three years and allow, you know, um, your competitors to have access to it. In 2003, when I started my MBA, Nokia had roughly 70% market share, where are they today? You know, yeah. it's, innovation is really key and it's very explosive. And it's the same in the drug sector, absolutely, in innovation and biotech. Speaking of which, you know, you've got a very large division of the Mayo Clinic here. We do. And they've been investing enormously into developing their own incubator and research center. They're really trying to push this idea of having a hub and developing new technologies on their campus. They've invested in 228 acres, which is quite a large site. Where do you see Arizona Biotech and Biopharma in five years? 
Only stronger. Um, I think, you know, Dr. Gray is a fantastic leader of the Mayo Clinic, and he has the right idea on, on building strategic partners. And that same entrepreneurial spirit and innovative spirit exists almost throughout Arizona. And that's why we're going to be a globally recognized leader, you know, and be able to attract talent from all around the world, whether it's Silicon Valley, you know, capital, or whether it's someone's like, I've got this idea for a biopharma thing, but I want to manufacture it in the right state. That's us. We're that state. We're that state that is open to all. We're a meritocracy here. You don't, it doesn't matter where you went to school, who your parents are. Anyone can come to Arizona and be successful. That's what we're known for. We're known for opportunity for all here. Danny, it's been great to speak with you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tony. Yeah, same to you. Thank you. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Scholtes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen O'Laughlin. This Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2022.